We live in a world of infinite shades of gray, not just 50. When it comes to sex and sexuality and gender, ambiguity has actually become a virtue. The less clear you are, the better. Sexual freedom is like the religion of the land. Since, and this is actually the, the lie that we live today, that your sexual desires define you, determine you, and should always delight you. But you know, since the fall of Adam and Eve, the human heart has set itself in defiance against God's perfect ways. This idolatry, though, of sexual freedom is on a collision course with the gospel, as my life was on a collision course with the gospel. I was not raised in a Christian home. My parents raised me with very traditional Chinese values that I can distill you to three things. Obey your parents, do well in school, and practice piano. <laughs> I had the secret that I kept hidden through high school, college, even the Marine Corps Reserves. In my early 20s, I no longer kept this secret, and I came out of the closet. I began living openly as a gay man in the gay community. So I decided to go home and break the news to my parents, and I told them, I am gay. It was my declaration. This is who I am. Devastated my mom. The timing couldn't have been any worse. My parents' marriage was a wreck. They actually had began the paperwork for a divorce. And for a mother who had put her sole identity in being a good wife and a good mom, this destroyed her world. Marriage was a wreck. Her two sons were wayward. So she decided to do the unthinkable. She was going to end her life. Amazing, though, through that crisis, God gave her life, and she committed her life to Christ. See, my mom went, had committed to end her life, and in reality, she did. One of her favorite verses today is Galatians 2.20. For I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself me. Christ living in her and my dad prepared my parents for the difficult years ahead as I headed further and further away from God. I spent most of my free time in the gay clubs and I went from relationship to relationship seeking intimacy and happiness, which I found, but it still left me feeling unfulfilled and unsatisfied. So I began experimenting with drugs. And to be really clear, not all gay men do drugs. Not all gay men are promiscuous. Of course, some are, some are not. But I'm just telling my story, not everyone else's story. But I also want to tell you that when you encounter Jesus, he's going to impact every aspect of your life. So I began experimenting with drugs, but like my classmates, I was broke. If I was going to do drugs, I had to find a way to support my habit. And I did that by selling drugs. And I sold to friends, classmates, even a professor. See, I actually thought I could live this double life of being a graduate student by day and a promiscuous drug dealer by night. But three months before I was received my doctorate, the administration of the school expelled me. So I moved from Louisville, where I was going to dental school, down to Atlanta, where I was going to the bright lights and big city of Atlanta, Georgia. And there I quickly 
took over the drug scene in the gay community, and I became a supplier to other dealers in over a dozen states. In addition, it was nothing for me out of multiple anonymous sexual encounters each and every day. Because according to the world, I had it all. Money, fame, drugs, and sex. I had exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and I began worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator. Because in my world, I had become God. My parents had no clue that I was doing drugs, but they knew my biggest need was to know Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. So they tried to reach out to the love of Christ, and I wanted nothing to do with it. They came to visit me one time in Atlanta, and I told them to get out. And you know, the interesting thing was, they weren't preaching at me. They weren't telling me I was living in sin. I knew what they believed because they told me before. But just the fact that God had so radically transformed their lives that they radiated Jesus, that was offensive to me. And I told them to leave. I didn't even give them an opportunity to call up their friends to pick them up. Before my dad left, he wanted to give me something. And it was his very first Bible. Had the notes in the margins. It was all dog-eared. And I told my dad, I don't want your Bible. He left it on my kitchen counter anyway and walked out the door. As soon as they left, I took my dad's Bible and I threw it in the trash can. I wanted nothing to do with God and certainly nothing to do with the Bible. And after that visit, it was more than obvious to my parents that I was hopeless. But my parents committed not to focus upon hopelessness, but upon the promises of God. And along with over a hundred prayer warriors from their church, from their Bible study fellowship group, they began to cry out to God for me. My mom began to pray a bold prayer. God, do whatever it takes to bring this prodigal son to you. Whatever it takes. In her desperation, she fasted every Monday for seven years and once fasted 39 days on my behalf. She would spend hours every morning in her prayer closet on her knees reading the Bible crying out to God, interceding for me, for many, many others. She knew that it was going to take nothing short of a miracle to bring this prodigal son to the Father. And a miracle is exactly what God did. This miracle came with a bang on my door. I opened up my door, and on my doorstep were 12 federal drug enforcement agents, Atlanta police, and two big German shepherd dogs. <laughs> I just received a large shipment of drugs, not my largest, but they confiscated all my money and my drugs, and I was charged with the equivalent of 9.1 tons of marijuana. With that amount, I was facing 10 years to life in federal prison. I had started with a bright future among society's finest in academia, and I found myself in the ditch among society's despised in the Atlanta City Detention Center. So I tried calling home, dreading making that phone call, just imagining the earful that I was going to get 
on the other line. But my mother's first words were, Son, are you okay? No condemnation, no berating words, just words of unconditional love and grace. The Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. Notice how Paul doesn't say that it's God's anger. He doesn't say that it's God's wrath. It's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. And even on that miserable day, God was pouring out his grace and drawing me to himself through the words of my mother. Actually, my mom was excited to get that phone call, if you can believe it or not, because <laughs> I hadn't called home in years, and she knew without a doubt that this was God's answer to her prayers. So she hung up that phone, fighting back the tears. She knew she had to do like that good old hymn says. Count your blessings. Name them one by one. No matter what storm she was going through, no matter what heartache she was enduring, she had to count her blessings. So she set the phone down, and next to the phone happened to be a calculator. And she tore off a little piece of the adding machine tape, and she wrote down these first blessings. Christopher is, is in a safe place <laughs> compared to before. <laughs> and he called home for the very first time. As my years in prison passed, she kept adding to this list and counting her blessings. And when I got out of prison, this list of blessings was longer and taller than she is, both sides. Three days later, I was walking on the cell block, and I passed by this garbage can. And as I looked at this trash, I thought, this is my life. I'm from upper middle class suburb of Chicago. My dad had two doctorates. I was just three months away from receiving my own doctorate. I had it made. But now I found myself among common criminals. Trash. With my head down, I was about to pass by this garbage can. But something on top of the trash caught my eye. I bent over, I picked it up, and it was a Gideon's New Testament. I took that New Testament back to my cell. I opened up that good book. For the first time, I read through the entire Gospel of Mark that night. But let me tell you, I wasn't thinking this is the Word of God, and I certainly wasn't thinking this is the answer. I just thought that I've got tons of time on my hands, and I better pass it somehow. But as many of you know, what we have in our Bibles is not just ink on paper, but what we have in our Bibles, 
ladies and gentlemen, is the very breath of God. And it is living and powerful and sharper than any double-edged sword, able to cut through the hardest of hearts, exposing my sin, my rebellion, and it wasn't a pre-sight, and I thought things going to get worse. I was wrong. A couple weeks later, I was called into the nurse's office. I was handcuffed. She shut the door behind me, sat me down. And I knew something wasn't right. She was uncomfortably struggling with her words. She couldn't even give me eye contact. So she resigned to writing something on a piece of paper, slowly slid it across the desk to me. I looked down, and I saw three letters and a symbol. It read H-I-V positive. The days after were dark and lonely. I was sentenced to six years, much better than 10 years to life, but news of my HIV status felt like a death sentence. One night I was laying in my bed in the prison cell all by myself, just contemplating the mess that I've made on my life. I lie there and I look up at the cold metal bunk above me. There was graffiti, profanity, gang symbols. Someone had written something else in the corner and it read, if you're bored, read Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans that I have for you declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. You see, at the most hopeless point in my life, the Lord God was using the words penned by a prophet thousands of years ago to a rebellious nation, Judah, to tell me that if God could have a plan for Judah in exile, in rebellion, he could even have a plan for me. I had no clue where that plan was going to take me, but God gave me enough faith, enough strength to get through that one day and the next and the next. My transformation was gradual. I wish I could tell you that at that moment, I said a sinner's prayer, got down on my knees, and everything after that was perfect, like no more problems. Far from the truth. It was then that God began convicting me of my dependencies most obviously drugs, but within a few months, God delivered me from that addiction. God kept bringing to mind other idols, and there was just this one thing that I felt like I just could not let go of, my sexuality. I was reading through the Bible, and it was so clear to me that God loved me unconditionally. As I kept reading the Bible, I came across some passages, three in the Old Testament, three in the New, that seemed to condemn that core part of who I thought I was, my sexuality. So I went to the chaplain, and I asked him his opinion. Remember, I'm a brand new Christian. I know very little about the Bible. And I thought to myself, I got to ask someone who's studied the Bible, who's gone to cemetery, seminary, <laughs> the chaplain. And to my surprise, this chaplain actually told me, oh, the Bible does not condemn same-sex relationships. He even gave me a book explaining that view. So think about it. 
with much curiosity, I took that book in the hopes of finding biblical justification for same-sex relationships. I had that book in one hand and the Bible in the other. Can I just tell you, from a human perspective, I had every reason in the world to accept what that book is claiming to justify the way I had been living. But God's indwelling Holy Spirit convicted me that those assertions from that book were a clear distortion of God and his word. I couldn't even finish that book, and I gave it back to the chaplain, which meant I turned to the Bible alone. And I went through every verse, every chapter, every page of Scripture looking for justification. I wanted to find any shred of evidence that might bless a monogamous same-sex relationship. So I went through the whole Bible. I went cover to cover several times. I had time. I looked, and I looked, and I looked, and I couldn't find any. So I was at this turning point, a crossroads. Either abandon God and his word, live as a gay man, pursue a monogamous same-sex relationship by allowing my attractions, get this, by allowing my sexual attractions to dictate not only who I was, but also how I lived. Or abandon pursuing a monogamous same-sex relationship. How? By freeing myself from my sexuality, by not allowing my desires to control who I am. And live as a follower of Jesus Christ. By God's grace, I followed Jesus. As the days and the weeks and the months of abstinence passed, I realized that my sexuality should not be the core of who I am. I told myself before, God loves me unconditionally. We all know that's true, right? But don't we as sinners often just want to add to God's truth? I added, so therefore God doesn't want me to change. Similarly, some of your friends who might say, God loves me just the way I am, so leave me alone. But after reading the Bible, I learned that unconditional love is not the same thing as unconditional approval of my behavior. Can I say it again? Unconditional love is not the same thing as unconditional approval of my behavior. You see, my identity should not be defined by my sexuality. My identity shouldn't be grounded in my desires, whether sexual or romantic. My identity is not gay. It is not ex-gay. It's not even heterosexual for that matter, because my identity as a child of the living God must be in Jesus Christ alone. God says, be holy, for I am holy. You know, I had thought before I became a Christian that I, to become a Christian, I had to become a heterosexual. What does that mean? I need to be sexually attracted to the opposite sex. As a matter of fact, I had even thought the more sexually attracted I were to lots and lots of women, the more of a Christian man I would be. But I realized that even if a man had opposite sex attractions, he would still need to flee temptation and resist sin. So actually, heterosexuality may be the right direction. It's just not the right goal. Think about this. God never commands us, be heterosexual, for I am heterosexual. But neither did God ever say, be homosexual, for I am homosexual. They're both the wrong secular Freudian categories. Instead, God says, be holy, for I am 
am holy. Therefore, the opposite of homosexuality is not heterosexuality. That's not the right goal. But the opposite of homosexuality is holiness. As a matter of fact, the opposite of every sin struggle is holiness. I don't need to focus upon whether I'm struggling or whether I'm tempted, but I need to focus upon living a life of holiness and living a life of purity because change is not the absence of temptations, but change is the spirit-wrought ability to be holy even in the midst of temptation. Because the ultimate issue is not whether I'm struggling or tempted, but the ultimate issue is that I yearn after God in total surrender and complete obedience. As I began to live this life of surrender and obedience, God began to reveal his plan for my life, and he called me to full-time vocational ministry while I was in prison of all places. And I realized it didn't matter where I was, whether I was in prison or out of prison, because my call to ministry would remain the same regardless of the location. And with that change of heart, God did another miracle, and he shortened my prison sentence from six years to three years, which is almost unheard of, by the way. So with only about a year left of my prison sentence, I knew that if I was going to continue on a ministry after prison, I'd better learn more about the Bible. So I called them, collected my parents. I told them I think God's calling me to ministry. And then I asked them to mail me an application to Moody Bible Institute. But there was silence on the other line because I think they both dropped their phones. <laughs> they mailed the application into me to prison. I was really excited when I got it. Tore it open, began filling it out until I got to the last page where they asked me for references, not from anybody, but these had to be people who knew me as a Christian for at least one year. I had some slim pickings in prison, <laughs> but I was able to persuade a prison chaplain, a prison guard, and another prison inmate to write my references to Moody. So amazingly, I was actually accepted. I was released from prison July of 2001, started the very next month in August. So imagine the surprise of my classmates when I answered their question, what did you do this summer? I graduated from Moody in 2005, went on to my master's in exegesis in 2007, received my doctorate of ministry in 2011, and then uh, I had the incredible opportunity um, in 2011 as well to co-author a book with my mother called Out of a Far Country, A Gay Son's Journey to God, A Broken Mother's Search for Hope. We wrote this together. She wrote chapter one, I wrote chapter two. She wrote all the odd chapters. I wrote the even chapters. We also found out that this book is used as a textbook today in many Christian schools. Who would have thought our testimony would be used as a textbook? But it makes sense because our kids today are being inundated with resources on sexuality, all from a non-Christian worldview. And we need to be proactive in helping our kids because they're hearing these stories. You know, I'm finally able to embrace who I am. I'm so happy. I'm really convinced that God is not so concerned about our happiness as he is concerned about our holiness. And I've never read anywhere in the Bible where it says, embrace yourself. No, it's the opposite. Deny yourself and embrace Christ. So people are using this, um, and there's a study guide in the back. Uh, I gave this challenge in rural Oklahoma, and this grandmother was like, I need 10 books, one for myself, nine for my grandchildren. Because I, I want to tell you, I'm fully convinced that the job to teach sex education doesn't belong in the hands of the public schools. You know, you know who holds that responsibility? Parents. But not just parents, grandparents. 
because you've got too much time on your hands. <laughs> but the real reason is, Grandpa, you might actually think back when you were a teenager, how much you listened to your parents at that age. You might have more of a listening ear to the grandkids than the parents do. Are we using it or are we wasting it? Are we using it to throw a lifeline to our children that are drowning in a tsunami of misinformation? Or are we just allowing the world to educate and disciple our kids? I think it's time we take it back from the world. Amen? How many of you guys want to take it back from the world? So my newest book, Holy Sexuality and the Gospel, helps us to think about what is biblical sexuality? Because oftentimes we just think about it as this. Don't do this. Don't do that. Don't do this. It's not simply that because you can't build a Christian life on God's no. My book helps us to understand what is God's yes, chastity and singleness, faithfulness in marriage. But this book, in the two or three years that it's been out, I realized we need something for teens. So right now, I'm finishing up a 12-lesson video curriculum that's going to have animation. It's going to be really high quality. That's going to be for parents and your teens. How many of you guys are parents or grandparents that have teenagers? There's almost, there, I don't know of any resources that's specifically for the home for parents and their teens to do this. Because who holds the responsibility? Parents, grandparents, where's the resources for that? So we're here to use this curriculum to fill this void. And so you can go to holysexuality.com if you want more information. You can scan this QR code. And I know it's a little small here, but you can just go to holysexuality.com, put your name and your email address. Hopefully by the beginning of 2023, it'll be out. We're super excited. All you need to do is be able to press play. Anyone know how to press play? Grandparents, all you need to do is press play. It's a 10-minute video. Have some discussion, another 10-minute video, and some discussion. Because silence is no longer an option. We're often so concerned. When is it too early to talk to my kids? Not the right question. The right question is, when is it too late? I used to say, we need to talk to, to our kids from six to eight years old. Not anymore. It's three to five. If that's when the world is talking to our kids, why should we be naive enough to think that we can wait till they're 10 or 11, 12 years old? You're going to have to do so much, so much rewiring and so much undoing that let's start now. Amen? Wouldn't it be great that you talk to your little, little kids and be like, has anyone talked to you about sex yet? No, mommy. Praise the Lord, let me be the first. Let's make that happen. Amen? <laughs> Let's make that happen. But I know many of us have friends who identify as gay or struggle. How, what is it that we need to do? Well, here's going to be some practical things here at the very, very end, and we're going to kind of go through this real quickly. You know, we, we need to speak the truth. Because it's the truth that sets us free. So many times people are like, well, what is the truth? Oh, that's easy. It's a sin. Anymore? No, that's it. It's a sin. That's all we do is say it's a sin. That's just God's no. Sometimes we'll even look at the verses, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10. Do you not know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And the list 10 sins, and we'll say, look, gays and lesbians won't inherit the kingdom of God because there's just, you know, these two sins that are listed there, but we forget about all, all the other eight. Because if we look at all 10, none of us should inherit the kingdom of God. But I praise the Lord God didn't stop there. Because he goes on to say in one of my favorite verses, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11. For such were, past tense, some of you. 
but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. That's not good news. That's amazing news. That's news that we can declare to anyone who needs to know about Jesus. So our message has to be redemptive. We need to focus upon the good news of Jesus Christ. Our friends, our neighbors who identify as gay or lesbian or bisexual, trans, queer, whatever it is, their main issue is not their sexuality or gender. That's not their main problem. Their main problem is their need to know and follow Jesus. My biggest sin was not being in a same-sex relationship. My biggest sin was unbelief. So how do we minister? Let's just first start with a, a group of um, Christians who have same-sex attractions. They know that this is sin. How do we walk with them? Let's say after this weekend, you have a good friend that confides with you. Man, I'm wrestling with my sexuality. What would you say or do? Number one, thank them. Thank them that they just trust you with this really private, personal matter. Don't freak out. Second, tell them that they're not alone. Many times people think they have to go through all life all alone, and that's a scary thought. Tell them, I don't know all, all there is to know about this, but I want to walk with you to Jesus. You don't have to know everything there is to know about a particular sin to help another sinner. You don't have to commit that sin to help another. Do you have to shoot up with heroin to help a heroin addict? Yes or no? They, thank you. No. Do you have to look at pornography to help someone who's struggling with pornography? Of course not. Then why all of a sudden with this particular sin, we don't know how to help someone because you don't struggle with that. Third, identity in Christ. Remind this Christian, do not put your identity in your sexuality. And that goes for even those of you who don't struggle with same-sex attraction. Don't identify as straight. You may have opposite-sex attractions, but don't identify by that. That's not who you are, but it's how you are. Our identity is not in our sexuality or really anything else. Our identity is in Christ alone. Amen? Fourth, be realistic. It's going to be difficult coming to Christ. I mean... If you're, whatever your sin struggle is, I mean, what does Jesus say? If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Is that going to be easy? Of course not. It's going to be difficult, but it's worth it. Fifth, don't focus so much on the externals, how people walk or talk or the length of their hair or whether they're jeans or skirt, whatever it is. That's not as important as true change from the inside out, and that's the work of the gospel. And then deepen and strengthen relationships in the body of Christ. I call this spiritual family. There's all this discussion today about friendships, which is a good discussion. But I think there's a reason why the Bible actually doesn't discuss much about the context of friendships. It really dives into the concept of brothers and sisters and family, the spiritual family, which is the church. How I need my needs of intimacy met as a single man or as married folks, it's in the body of Christ. We need the church. So how do we share Christ with those in the gay community who identify as gay? Maybe some who even say, I'm a Christian. I mean, remember, remember 70% of Americans say they're Christian. Wouldn't that be great if that were true? We didn't look at their life. Are they living according to the gospel and according to his truth or not? So how do we share Christ? Here are some things that you should not do. First, do not compare this, 
this sin with an addiction, pedophilia, or murder. It's not a good way to win people to Christ. Don't say these two words, lifestyle and choice. I, use, I never use those words as a gay man. You know why? Because I had the wrong identity. I really believe if there's something that we miss is how the world has completely confused identity with sexuality. We view sexuality as who we are when it's really what we do, what we feel. Third, don't say love the sinner, hate the sin. Do it. Don't say it. Fourth, don't always feel the need that you have to answer every single question or debate with people. For example, if someone says, do you think this is sin? I know actually, I mean, Jesus didn't answer every question. I know that question being asked is not the question of utmost importance. Because even if I convince them that it was, if they don't know Jesus, they're still lost. So I can deflect to the more important question. I could say, my friend, I, don't, I know you don't even believe in God yet, so what does it matter now what God thinks is wrong? Instead, we need to discuss whether God exists or not. Those conversations about God can lead to Jesus, can lead to salvation. So here's what you should do. Number one, pray. Pray and fast. You guys know the movie War Room? That movie War Room was written by the Kendrick brothers. The, their script, they worked with a, uh, an author to turn their script into a, a novel. When the book and the movie came out, we got a copy of the book, a complimentary copy of the book. When we opened it up, we saw that Chris Fabry, the author, had dedicated that book to my mom. Do battle for people who can, cannot stand in the gap for themselves. Second, we need to listen. Don't be quick to speak but be quick to listen. We can show we care by listening. Remember, listening to someone doesn't mean you agree. It's what you might say. Don't say, I'm so happy for you. I, I can't say that. But I could say, I see this makes you happy. See, that's a different than saying, I'm happy for you. Third, be intentional. Go across the street. Invite your gay neighbor over for dinner. I know people think, well, wouldn't I be condoning their sin? And that's a good question. But last time I checked, we usually have sinners over for dinner. <laughs> right? I mean, it's nothing new. You're eating with them. You're not sinning with them. There's a big difference. Fourth, be patient and persistent. It's going to take time for someone to come to know Christ. If God wasn't a long haul for you, let's do the same for others. Lastly, be transparent. Talk about what God is doing in your life today, this week, this month. How has God changed you? What, is, what are you learning in God's word? Talk about that. Be real. I would never have considered the gospel if I didn't see the gospel lived out of my parents' lives. I wouldn't have picked up the Bible from the trash if I didn't see the Bible lived out of my father's life and my mother's life. I did not lead pursuing same-sex relationships because my parents convinced me that it was wrong. I left it because they showed me something better. And his name Jesus. Our job as followers of Christ is to show a dying world out there that no matter what they're clinging to, all the fools go into the world, job, career, money, a relationship, family, not only is Jesus better than all of that, but following Jesus is best. I know many of you might not have heard a story like mine before, ever. A guy who used to identify as gay and, and now no longer does. And that's true. But that is not how I would summarize my testimony. Can I summarize my testimony? 
I once was blind, and now I see. I once was lost, and now I'm found. I once did not believe, and now I believe in the Son of God, and his name is Jesus. That's my testimony. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus. Lord, we praise you that it is only in you that we have life, that we have meaning. Lord, that everything that we have comes from you. Lord, I thank you that, that all these issues around sexuality and gender, Lord, are really just secondary. But the primary thing that is true for every person that has ever lived is our need to follow Jesus. Deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow him. Lord, help us to do that. And Lord, help us to love you more than life. For it's in the powerful, matchless name of Jesus we pray. And the people of God said, amen.